0: Hello there and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love. I'm your host Andrew Bonaparte and today we are joined by Father Gregory Pine of the Order of Preachers. Father Pine, thanks for joining us. Yeah, hey, thanks for having me on. And uh, Father Pine co-hosts the Dominicans God podcast and has done many talks for their Thomistic Institute. Father Pine, what are you up to these days?
1: So I am assigned in Freiburg, Switzerland where I am a student at the University of Freeburg, and I'm working on a doctorate in dogmatic theology. And specifically, I'm writing about what St. Thomas Aquinas has to say about our Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm coming to the end. Uh, it's five chapters long, and I'm working on my fifth and final chapter.
0: And you're generously making time for us in the middle of that final chapter. So thank you for, for joining us. My joy. We want to talk today a little bit about Aquinas and his discussion of marriage, which I think is something that gets overlooked in a lot of our discussions, because Aquinas talked about a great many other things uh, that tend to get a lot more attention. And also because we sometimes don't expect Aquinas to speak to people on a very practical level today. So, Father, just to start out, does Aquinas' thought on marriage offer any kind of practical benefits for married couples?
1: Uh, It does indeed. I think it was G.K. Chesterton who said that the most practical person in the world is the mystic, which sounds like a purposefully paradoxical thing. So, it's just (laughs) the type of thing that G.K. Chesterton would say. Yep, that sounds about right. But insofar as only the truth bears grace and there's no real holy life to be built on the back of an ideology. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas gives us clear, coherent teaching about the sacrament of marriage. And so it's bound to be practical in the sense that it concerns a reality that is a big deal for most people, all people. And so far as all of us are the fruit of, you know, the love of a man and a woman at some level. And as a result of which, it's going to impact our lives in very concrete ways. So, yes and yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's good to hear because, you know, I was looking at some of his his writing and he didn't finish the Summa Theologia, as you know, as you well know. And he stopped writing it in the middle of his discussion on the sacraments shortly before he would have gotten to marriage. So, it's interesting. Of course, he wrote about it in other places, but it occupies this interesting place in his writings where he... Almost got there. Maybe he had started to think about it before he he stopped writing. His writing on marriage, which we also see in the Summa Contra Gentiles, it wasn't the beginning of a serious Catholic thinker writing about marriage in the Christian
1: tradition, right? No, it's not. Uh, insofar as, right, when we think about the, the Catholic tradition, we can identify certain monuments of tradition, right? Things which we hand on and which shape our faith. And the principal monument of tradition, obviously, is the sacred scripture. A good way in which to discover what the sacred scriptures have to say about marriage is just to read man and woman he created them, because St John Paul II organizes his Wednesday audiences, at least at the outset, on scriptural texts. Mm-hmm. So Ephesians 5 is a big one. First Corinthians seven is a big one, obviously, now, maybe not obviously, but Matthew 19 is a huge one. And so far as when our Lord talks about marriage, he appeals to the beginning. From the beginning, it was not so man and woman, he created them such that dot, dot, dot. So that's like the the big text with which he opens his theology of the body. So we always have to root our thinking and our speculating in the sacred scriptures because scripture is the soul of sacred theology. And without it, you're just a corpse.
0: You know, following the lead of scripture, were there were there others in the early church who were paying similar attention to the importance of marriage?
1: Yeah, I think. One of the ones that gets most play is St. Augustine. Mm -hmm. So, in the 4th and 5th century, there are a lot of debates about marriage and whether marriage is merely a concession to the weakness of human beings (laughs) or whether it's something beyond that, something big and bold and beautiful, part of God's original plan for our flourishing. And so, uh, one of those debates is had in conversation with what, Jovinian. So, St. Augustine has a lot to say about marriage. He commented the book of Genesis a variety of times, what well, like three or four times. I was I was seeing that recently in the confessions. It was citing the different ways in which he approaches the book of Genesis because there's a, a commentary on those first couple chapters of Genesis at the end of the confessions. But he also has a commentary on Genesis against the Manichees, who would have said body bad, therefore marriage bad, insofar as marriage is the source of more bodies. Hmm. And then he has a literal commentary on Genesis where he thinks at great length and depth about why Eve. So why did the Lord make this helpmate for Adam? What's significant about her? And so, that's going to be one of the big sources for St. Thomas Aquinas because after Sacred Scripture, he quotes St. Augustine next most of those figures of the Christian tradition. He also quotes Aristotle a heck of a lot.
0: We can't canonize him on this podcast, but we can at least
1: recommend him in large part. (laughs) We'll canonize him on another podcast called Made for Aristotelian Love. So, just wait for that, listener.
0: Okay. So, turning to Aquinas' discussion of marriage, one thing that I was surprised about is that he talks about equality. Um, which is not something that we are generally inclined to attribute to people thinking before, I don't know, John Locke. And so what role does equality play in marriage? Does does there have to be an equality in marriage according to Aquinas?
1: It's a kind of equality because whenever you say X is equal to Y, you have to specify in what way. Mm -hmm. Are men equal to women in, and then you cite some accidental feature, like soccer, for instance. So, when you say equality, it's like, what kind of equality are we talking about? Are they equally good, statistically speaking, at scoring goals in the World Cup? Well, which World Cup? I mean, no. (laughs) So, when it comes to equality, you have to talk about the equality of, you know, like a human person made to the image and likeness of God. So men and women are both made to the image and likeness of God, and that's where St. Thomas kind of roots his discussion. And the way that he identifies the image of God is, you know, intellect and will, those highest powers of the soul, those spiritual powers, uh, which are the source of our freedom. So whereas everything else in material creation just kind of goes along its merry way without a thought in its head, we do have a thought in our head. And we can know what our goal is, and we can choose our goal. So, we can proceed towards that goal deliberately and intentionally. And as a result of which, we can make manifest the glory of God in peculiar fashion. So, God places our lives in our hands. And beyond being like a mere kind of static, as it were, image of the uh, God Most High, we're also like a dynamic image of God insofar as like our, our minds and our hearts, they set before us a certain path or they set before us a certain journey to be undertaken. And so, we can come to know God and to love God, and we can come to know and love God with his own knowledge and love of himself, so that beyond merely representing God, we come to be conformed to God. And so, men and women are both prized with this capacity, but you'll you'll hear the sacred scriptures talking about their equality as somehow differentiated, right? They're made to be in a relationship to each other. Not to like fall into crash gender stereotypes, but there's going to be differences in the relationship, mm-hmm. but that doesn't militate against a basic or kind of foundational equality on account of the fact that both man and woman are made to the image and likeness of God. And St. Thomas has this cool way of explaining it, where he says, you know, note in Genesis two that the woman is created from man's side; she's not created from his head, lest she rule over him, nor is she created from his feet, lest he suborn her. She's made from his side. In keeping with this understanding of her as a helpmate. Right. So there's still going to be, you know, like the paradigm that's used in Ephesians 5 is one of headship. So Christ is head of the church, man is head of woman in marriage. And what that means obviously is a complicated issue. And it becomes more complicated in the 21st century with the types of like critiques that people have in mind, like mm-hmm. the feminist critique, for instance. You know, we have to, we have to be honest about the sacred page, and we have to be docile in reading it and interpreting it. So, you know, different people have different things to say about what that headship represents. But obviously, that's a that's a fascinating theme. I have my own thoughts about it. When people try to
0: think back about how marriage was discussed in earlier eras, I think a lot of times they hear about the begetting and raising of children and they think, oh, it's just about uh, concern for the survival of the species. It's not a very lofty concern. And Aquinas does talk about the importance of children for marriage, but is it just about that kind of basic necessity as it is with other animals. You know, a minute ago, you mentioned how other animals are happy to just go along um, without knowing and loving God and perpetuating the species. Is that the sense in which Aquinas is
1: talking about having children in marriage? Is that why he cares about it? That's part of the story. I mean, that's the kind of natural basis of marriage. When St. Thomas talks about the seven sacraments, he likens them to different aspects of bodily life or corporeal life. So, there's a kind of correspondence between the corporeal and the spiritual. And he says marriage is about perpetuation of the species. And he says like priesthood is about governance. Mm-hmm. And if you read it in those terms, it's like, wow, call the priesthood. I've never been so inspired to rule, <laughs> right? But, but he's completely content to say other beautiful things about the priesthood. So, too, is he content. I mean, he's very happy, motivated to say beautiful things about the sacrament of marriage. Like elsewhere, he says that marriage is maxima amicitia, is greatest friendship, So, when he talks about the procreation and education of children, which is just about the sexiest way that having children (laughs) has ever been described in the church's tradition, he typically describes it as the goal or the end of marriage, right? But that goal or end is in conversation with like the shape or the form of marriage, right? Which in the subsequent tradition is described as the mutual support of the spouses. So, it's a particular type of friendship that you have in marriage. It's a conjugal friendship. It's not just like marriage is a friendship that's really intense. It's possible to have really intense friendships elsewhere, right? That aren't marriage. Uh, What's distinctive about marriage is that it's a conjugal friendship, right? So, that distinguishes it from your other relationships that you have sexual intercourse with this person and just with this person. And whenever you have sexual intercourse, it ought to be open to life. There are exceptions insofar as there are aged people who get married without a genuine hope of begetting and raising children, but don't make the exception the rule or don't make it such that you craft a theory just on exceptions. So, I think that you sometimes hear that in marriage debates and I would just say, let exceptions be exceptions. Mm -hmm. But St. Thomas will talk about procreation education to children is like the end or the goal of marriage and that uh, marriage itself is shaped or patterned on this idea of mutual support or friendship, but with this goal in mind and that the goal really does shape the whole of the endeavor. So, it's not just that a man and a woman become baby-making machines, uh, because in the garden, this was intended to obtain both in the natural and supernatural order. Father Gregory, that makes no sense to me. What are you talking about? (laughs) Excellent question, interlocutor. Father Gregory, that makes
0: no sense to me. What are you talking about? (laughs) Oh, thank you. Perfect.
1: (laughs) So, in the garden, God intended it such that when Adam and Eve came together in sexual intercourse, that the fruit... Of their married love, right? The fruit of their sexual intercourse would be children blessed with the life of grace. All right, so when God would infuse the human soul, who was the fruit, who was the offspring of two unfallen people, uh, that He would have infused that soul with grace, virtue, gifts of the Holy Spirit, etc. So, marriage was always intended to be a kind of like monstrance of the glory of God made manifest and communicable in creation. Like we were intended in the setting of marriage. It would have been a natural marriage because it wouldn't have been sacramental marriage in the way in which we currently understand that right. because there were no sacraments in the garden. That it would have been for not just like the procreation and education of children in the natural order, but that it would have been for their sanctification. And again, sanctification understood in a particular way, like the elevation of their, of their nature beyond its natural bounds. It made them for the life of God in a particular way. So that's pretty exalted. And that's baked within what St. Thomas says. So, yeah, don't be misled by the sometimes sober language when he describes the natural order.
0: That kind of sober language around the natural order, it kind of sounds like it sort of mirrors the, the sort of day-to-day domestic mundaneness of raising a two-year-old, changing diapers for the six-month-old, you know, in between. And so, that, that helps, I think, provide, you know, a reminder that it's more than it seems. And it's more, it's more exalted than it seems, so that is helpful. One objection to Aquinas' kind of coverage of some of these topics that I've heard, you've probably heard it as well, has to do with one particular question in the Summa Theologiae, question 92, which talks about men and women. And he has some language about women that does not sound like it. Respects their dignity as equal to men, how do we make sense of that? Is there anything in in those passages
1: that we can affirm? Is there anything that we should scrutinize? So St. Thomas got th- certain things wrong, and in certain instances, he theologizes incorrectly. For instance, the Immaculate Conception is one example that people will often cite. There are other things where it's not so much a matter of him theologizing incorrectly, it's a matter of him having bad data. And so when he's in reliance upon, the contemporary biology or cosmology or whatever it is, uh, sometimes that does, yeah, hamstring him in, in his efforts. And I think that you know this isn't to make like the big apology for Saint Thomas Aquinas says basically right all the time, and anyone who says otherwise stinks. But, <laughs> but it, I, what I find fascinating is even with that bad data, he doesn't permit it to undermine his account, or he doesn't premise his account on the bad data in such a way that it's absolutely insalvageable. Right, as a result. So, like St. Thomas does think that given his knowledge of human embryology and human biology, like he didn't think that the soul was present in a human being until a certain amount of time that men and women would have taken longer to gestate or to develop in the womb so as to like contract a human soul or be disposed to the reception of a human soul. He thinks certain things about, you know, like the development or formation of male and female organs, uh, which would have been peculiar to that. And as a result of which he thinks that women are less uh, just kind of on a biological level. Right. And on the basis of that, he makes further claims. And so there are things about that that are wrong, and there are certain instances in which he theologizes on the back of that, which can be misleading or can be wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when it comes to reading Saint. Thomas Aquinas, I think that we need to extend him a certain sympathy. and I think in conversation with feminist critiques, I think that we have to do the work of yeah recovering and salvaging what is good whilst still acknowledging limitations of the biology or of the cast of mind of a thirteenth century man who would have lent credence to those things when they would seem to be somewhat off base. It's kind of a relief
0: actually to see, you know, because I was first introduced to the objections before I read the actual article they were objecting to. And when I went and read the article, I saw what you were, what you just described, where it's not the theological system itself that is the cause of the problematic language. It's the outmoded biology. I didn't say false. Yeah. the, the (laughs) The false biology that he was dealing with at the time that he didn't have the capability to go beyond. Yeah. yeah. I'm glad you, you put it as data that he was working with, because that's an easily remedied, from our perspective, issue, more so than like an actual theological commitment that he was making to like some sort of cosmic inferiority of women or something like that. Yep. Then we'd have to reject way more of what he was saying, which fortunately we don't have to do. So when you mentioned that Aquinas talks about all of the sacraments in reference to kind of bodily life and how each of them sort of elevates bodily life in a way it made me think of in the same way that he's not just he's not just limited to the bodily necessity of marriage he's also not only concerned with the bodily nature of receiving the eucharist by eating what appears to be ordinary food right it's not obviously not just ordinary food it's way more than that all of the sacraments have this general outward value that appears to be ordinary but contains a something extraordinary and inward.
1: Can you say a little bit more about that when it comes to marriage? So marriage is one of these peculiar sacraments. Well, it's the only one which was present before its institution in some way. I mean, you have like Old Testament ritual washings, which kind of look like baptism, or you have Old Testament anointings, which may look like confirmation or the anointing of the sick. You have Old Testament practices of expiation and stuff like that. But marriage is peculiar. Insofar- People were getting married before Christ. Right, so it's a natural institution which he blesses and he supernaturalizes, it. so it becomes a sacrament. He raises it to the dignity of a sacrament. Yeah, and it's one of those things where we don't we don't think about it too terribly much in those sacramental terms. Uh, maybe that's because a lot of our debates are just trying to defend the institution of marriage for in a more everybody, basic and sensible way. Yeah, exactly. But it is a sacrament, and a sacrament is a sign of a sacred thing that makes men and women holy, as Saint Augustine defines it, and Saint Thomas picks up that definition and runs with it. So. This is where the discussion in Ephesians 5 is super illuminating or enlightening, namely that it's in loving the spouse and the children that come from that union that one sanctifies the other members of the family. So the idea is that like a husband becomes a sign to his wife of God's love for his church, specifically of Christ's love for his church. So Christ is the head The church are the members. Together they constitute the one worshiping Christ to the praise of God the Father. Mm -hmm. So a man becomes the sign of that to his wife. And what does Christ do for love of his church? He lays down his life as a testimony of his love. It's love in a particular key, in a particular register. And that passage in Ephesians 5, verse 21, I think, it begins with, be subordinate to each other out of love for Christ. So, there's a sense of mutual subordination, but like I said earlier, it's a differentiated one because if A is subordinate to B in the same way that B is subordinate to A, you have a logical contradiction because things can't cause themselves. Yeah. So, a woman is meant to be assigned to her husband of the church's love for Christ. And they are able to, in this differentiated love, to mediate the grace of God to each other. So, they become efficacious signs to each other of God's grace, right? Of God's interior life, which is manifest in sanctifying grace and virtues, gifts of the Holy Spirit, all kinds of cool things besides. Mm -hmm. So, does that mean that, you know, the man will necessarily be the breadwinner? No, no, no. It doesn't mean like we're pining after like 1950s Pleasantville. The times are different. And I think that each vocation unfolds in the context of time, place, and circumstance. And I think that you have to take that into account. That's a longer conversation, which will involve me and More polemics, but you have to take that into account. But I do think that there is a kind of directionality to the transmission of grace in the sacrament of marriage, and this gets back to the question of headship. Like a man is meant to love his wife in the way that Christ loves the church, and the woman is meant to love her husband in the way that the church loves Christ. Are those two loves unrelated? No, no, no. There's there are things about those loves which are very similar. All yeah. right, and it's going to involve sacrifice in both ways. It's going to involve fidelity and affirmation, physical. Pre- it's going to involve all kinds of similar elements, but they're it's differentiated. And so, I think that's one of the things that's cool about the sacrament of marriage is this headship piece, right? So, as Christ is head of the church, as grace flows to the church through Christ, as he lays down his life for the church, as its head, right, as the perfect, you know, head of the church, as he in whom every good and perfect gift is contained or is present So too, you know, in the sacrament of marriage, dot, 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 he ends that sentence elliptically because he's already been talking for 17 minutes without a breath. (laughs) Yeah. So I think that we have a better sense of the sign value or the sacramental quality of the other, of the other sacraments, like baptism, you wash, the person is cleansed, Eucharist, you say the words with which Christ instituted it and Christ is present sacramentally and substantially. Like, I think we have a better sense for how the sign functions in those instances. Yeah. Whereas. I think it's just a little more obscure in the sacrament of marriage, but that husbands and wives can conceive of themselves and of the way that they love their spouses and the fruit of that love, which is to say their children. And that they become efficacious signs, like their consent, their yeah. ongoing consent, their affirmation of that ongoing consent becomes an efficacious sign whereby grace is dispensed in the life of the other, which is wild. That's cool.
0: We actually, in our last episode, we were talking about the Lord of the Rings show, the Rings of Power that just came out. They okay. quoted verbatim, well, they didn't quote verbatim, but they said the line, outward manifestation of an inner reality in the course of the show and sort of knock me off my feet there for a second to hear them talking, but using that sort of like sacramental adjacent language is very strange. There was some stuff that sounded very un-Amazon-like in the show. Um, (laughs) So that was refreshing. Not perfect. But uh, anyway, I think we have to wrap it up there. Father Pine, where can people
1: find you online? So, I contribute at present to four podcasts. (laughs) First one is called Pints with Aquinas, which I suppose people would know. So, there's a video each weekend on pints. The next one is called Catholic Classics, which is by Ascension. The first season of that, we read The Introduction to the Devout Life, or we are reading The Introduction to the Devout Life and then giving short commentary on it. I do that with another Dominican friar. And uh, the third one is called Domestic Institute, which you mentioned at the top of the hour. Mm -hmm. So, like every other week, an interview with somebody who gives lectures for the Domestic Institute. And then the fourth one is probably like, what's the most Dominican of, the, of them all? <laughs> Maybe that's not true. Nah, no, nah, they're all pretty Dominican. But this one is uh, the one that I usually just plug simply and straightforwardly. It's uh, God's Planning, So it's a podcast with four of the Dominican friars. Short episodes, 30 minutes every week on Thursday, plus some guests, some live streams, and then some meditations on the sacred scripture that'll crop up here and there.
0: Awesome, we'll link all those in the episode notes as well. Well, that will do it for us. Father Pine, thank you for joining us. Hey, my joy. Thanks for having me on. And we are back. Kara Bach, thank you for joining us once again. Thanks for having me, as usual. Today we're talking about Casablanca, which is enjoying its 80th anniversary, Kara. That's wild. And this was your first time seeing the movie.
2: I know. I feel sort of embarrassed about this. I've realized every time we talk about an old movie, I'm like, oh, I've seen all kinds of old movies. And then it's like, oh, but I haven't seen any old movies that other people have seen. (laughs) I've seen like, why did my parents have Brigadoon? That was like- (laughs) Brigadoon? Big Brigadoon fam. Seven Rides for Seven Brothers I Will Stand By. Mm. That one's not totally obscure. But yeah, those are like the two big musicals. I'm like, Singing in the Rain? Nope. Oklahoma? Never seen it.
0: I have also never seen Oklahoma, and I've only seen Singing in the Rain once. So- you're not alone there. Oh, good. <laughs> but I have seen Casa up many, many more times than once. Fair. Kara, on your first watch, what did you think?
2: Oh, man. So, I feel like all the things I'm about to say are weird or negative. Yeah, I've never seen a movie with Humphrey Bogart. For some reason, I thought he was supposed to be like a lot more handsome. <laughs> okay, I've, I I realize I've come off really shallow on this podcast I promise that there are other things that I noticed, but that was the first, like, immediate one that I was like, oh, I thought he was supposed to be really handsome and dashing. And he's kind of gritty. Is it
0: the personality of Rick, the character, or is it the, like, five-foot-eight chain smoker appearance?
2: (laughs) It's more the appearance, because I think in my mind, I thought he was supposed to be this really dashing, handsome person, Mm. my father corrected me. So, we watched this over Thanksgiving with my husband, who has seen this many times, my father, who has seen it many times, and my mom, and they were all floored that I had never seen it. (laughs) I was like, how is it possible that my parents have seen this thing like hundreds of times and I have never once? But yeah, my parents were basically like, no, 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 that's not why he's famous. So, that was more, I think, just like my own personal, I did not understand why Humphrey Bogart was famous. He was an excellent actor, though. I very much enjoyed the movie. I think the thing that struck me the most, though, was, well, two things. One was that maybe I was looking at Wikipedia while we were doing this. For some reason, it came up early on that this movie was actually made before the war was over. Oh,
0: yeah. Early on.
2: I think it was right after the U.S. entered the war, or maybe it was before the U.S. entered the war, but it was really fascinating to me that, like, you know, I think seeing it with our eyes today, like, obviously, the Nazis are the bad guys. And in, you know, if you're thinking about being in the middle of the war, like, the Nazis are still obviously the bad guys. But (laughs) it it was just kind of had a different feel when it's like a live question as to like, who's actually coming out on top here,
0: who's gonna win the war. Yeah,
2: (laughs) yeah, it's like, oh, that part of it just was really interesting to me that that was like, not a settled question going into the viewing of this movie.
0: Yeah, it really helps to like, peel back like kind of the historical layers of assumptions that we have about world war ii because this movie was originally a play that was never produced but it was written called everybody comes to ricks before world war ii even started and at that time when the script was sort of making the rounds in hollywood uh, not every movie production company was really willing to be opposed to the nazis uh (laughs) (laughs) Wild. Yeah. Yeah. Anti-Nazism was more of a leap before Pearl Harbor than we think now Mm. looking back. And so Warner Brothers in agreeing to have this movie made, it was more, I guess, controversial than we would think now. The movie was filmed, I don't know, less than six months after Pearl Harbor. And originally it was going to come out in 1943, but they moved up the initial premiere to be roughly 80 years ago as this podcast is coming out in 1942 to coincide with Operation Torch, the actual literal real life allied liberation of... North Africa, including the city of Casablanca. Oh, interesting. So it was supposed to be like thematically like tying into real world events like as they happened.
2: Oh, that's wild.
0: Yeah. Sometimes it gets lost because we just think Rick and Elsa good, Nazis bad, and that's it. But there's way more to it than that.
2: I guess I didn't actually know that much about this movie going into it. I'm realizing as I have now seen it that I didn't really know very much about this movie because I think in my mind, I just knew it was a love story. And it was, you know, kind of in the World War II time. Yeah, right. And so I was sort of surprised by the amount of political machinations going on in the movie, which I actually found extremely compelling just from like a narrative standpoint. Like, I just loved the characters. I feel like the Rick character and also the guy who's, like, the head of police for Morocco was just, yeah, like... Re-
0: Renault, played by Claude Rains. Yeah, yeah, he
2: was, like, what a great character. Just the transparency of the sort of politics of it were, was, like, really mm-hmm. clever and fun, but also, I think, kind of, like, conveyed a certain amount of, the, like, the levity of the situation, particularly when the sort of Nazi characters come in.
0: Yeah, and there, there are, are these, like connections between Rick's personal life, which is why we're talking about this on the podcast, because it's a it's one of the most famous romance movies of all time, mm-hmm. and his sort of status as a stand-in for like the United States. He's the only American character in the cast, much of which the actors they got to play a lot of the cast, those were real Europeans who had fled Nazi Germany.
2: Oh interesting.
0: Those are real refugees in large part. And there are these lines every so often which sort of associate how Rick lives his own life with foreign policy. A couple quotes like when Rick talks about sticking his neck out for nobody and somebody tells him isolation is no longer a practical policy. Mm -hmm. There's another line which takes the opposite stance and describes Rick's sort of neutrality as a wise foreign policy.
2: I mean, other than movies that are overwrought trying to make a political point. The way that it's sort of woven into the fabric of the time feels a lot more, I don't know, sort of strikingly natural in a way that I think is unusual, particularly for what is ostensibly a romance. It's so
0: funny because before, maybe as this movie was coming out, people in the 40s generally loved the movie, but there were people who said, oh, the dialogue's hokey and it's very schmaltzy. And we think of people in the 40s back then being schmaltzy, and yet these people are saying about the lines that we love and have become famous in movie history now, Mm. how, like, cheesy they thought it was. So one other area, which is maybe a good segue into the meat of what we wanted to talk about, you know, from the other direction, when they are talking about Rick's political affiliation, they talk about how he used to fight for these lost causes earlier, like in the 30s. And Renaud, the head of the French police says, I suspect that under that shell, you're at heart a sentimentalist. And that sentimentalism carries over, I think, or him going back and forth about whether he's a sentimentalist, sort of carries over from the political realm into his personal life. And so the two get intertwined in that direction, too. Because I think this movie, as we have apparently made it our mission on this podcast to combat, (laughs) this movie deals with sentimentalism. (laughs) So I don't know if JP2 saw Casablanca before he wrote Love and Responsibility, but we're dealing with <laughs> sentimentalism here again.
2: The ever-present wisdom of, uh, of Eleanor. No, it's true. It's interesting. They say it in the movie about the sentimentalism and their time in Paris is obviously this whirlwind romance. So he is clearly a sentimentalist. But the thing I found so interesting about this movie is – The fact that in the end, like once he knows the reality of her situation, like she is married, full stop. It's just like the morality of what the right thing to do is, is so clear to him.
0: That doesn't make it easy, though, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. Like there's obviously... he does grapple with it. Yeah, he definitely grapples with it. But in a way that I think as a modern viewer, like this movie is sort of, I don't want to say baffling, but it's this movie would never get made today in the sense that the fact that they like don't end up together.
0: When you want them to get end up together so badly,
2: right? Especially because her husband, I'm glad that they make her husband a more complicated character. It would be easy to make him be so all about the politics that he doesn't care about her at all, so that you don't feel conflicted about whether or not she should leave him. But they make it clear, kind of from the beginning, that he probably would have had a much easier time without her, right? Like he could have escaped and like he is a wanted man, but like he stayed behind because she was sick and all these other things. So the fact that he is willing to sacrifice for her, they have a real marriage. It's not simply like he's this politician and they like had this thing that happened years ago and now they're stuck together. Like it's interesting that they made him a little bit more – three-dimensional. Because I think today, if you got a movie like this, I just keep thinking of that awful, awful movie, Something Borrowed, where... (laughs) Okay, spoiler alert, if you ever thought you wanted to see this movie, let me dissuade you. I'm not aware
0: of this movie, so go for it. (laughs) I
2: will dissuade you now from ever seeing this movie. So, in Something Borrowed, there's these two best friends, two women who are best friends. One of the women has a crush on this Guy in law school, they're in law school together, but you know, she's like kind of too shy. And so when her best friend expresses interest, she ends up with the guy, you know, flash forward to years later and the guy is engaged to the best friend, but then she like embarks on this affair with him and it's this long drawn out, like, Oh, they're really meant to be together. The best friend is a terrible person. Everybody is terrible in this book. Nobody deserves (laughs) a happy ending is the short story here. And so but you're like kind of I'm like I guess I'm supposed to be rooting for the people who are having the affair cuz they really were meant to be together. This movie is the antithesis of that and it makes me so happy just to see that it's like no, they're <laughs> married. And yes, you know, they she had this affair but she thought her husband was dead. Very different. Yeah, she thought he was dead. It's yeah, different. Like, like she thought he was dead. Now they're together and like Humphrey Bogart's character makes the right choice. Like, Rick ultimately does the right thing by saying, like, no, you two need to escape together and I will continue on with my life, even though it makes me sad that we're not together.
0: Should we, should we say blanket spoilers for Casablanca? Is that even necessary?
2: <laughs> Why are you listening to this? A <laughs> Yeah. Uh, hopefully you are not like me and had not seen this. It also reminded me of another movie, which now this is a real spoiler alert. If you've never seen Roman Holiday.
0: Skip ahead 30 seconds.
2: It sort of is a similar thing where it's like the idea that the main characters don't end up together is just like unheard of today. But it's again, another example of a movie where like, they're doing the right thing. And like, that's more important than heart eyes romance.
0: Exactly. They're, they're actually willing the good of the other, even when that, makes a romantic relationship impossible.
2: Yeah. Also, if you haven't seen Roman Holiday, another gem. Yeah. There's one old movie that I have actually seen.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Maybe we should put Roman Holiday on the list in addition to all the movies that Stephen Gray Dona's gave us. He gave us like 10 movies.
2: Mm -hmm. Sign me up. I love that movie.
0: I think the movie has an interesting way of like expressing the good of the other that was like very impactful at the time in that historical setting. Cause like at that famous scene by the plane at the end, you know, Rick is trying to soften the blow, I guess, of saying we have to go our separate ways and you know, I'm not gonna break up your marriage because it's what the world needs so your husband can continue his work and fight for freedom. And he says, we'll always have Paris. And the the plain reading of that is you, Ilsa and I, Rick, will always be able to remember that time that we spent falling in love in Paris. Right? That's great. That's nice. But we gotta remember at that time we as a society didn't have paris the nazis occupied paris when this movie came out Mm. so it's also a way of saying by choosing rightly here we will always have it and not the nazis that is we'll we'll fight for the right thing we'll do what it takes to make the world free and liberate paris which at the time of this movie coming out, people didn't know what was going to happen. This like earth-shattering, paradigm-altering thing of the Germans ruling at that time—the probably the single, you know, most major city in Europe, which is very much not German. Mm. Because Rick is making this choice, because he's being sacrificial and not a sentimentalist, it's possible to quote-unquote have Paris mm. in the future, <laughs> not just not just as a, as a memory exercise.
2: Yeah, it's sort of like um, more of an expression of hope and and sort of like yep. defiance. I mean, obviously, like much of the end of this movie is an act of defiance. But yeah, that's an interesting point about that. And it ends on a hopeful
0: note, right? With the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Mm. You know, they're talking about beginnings, even though he's just said goodbye to the most important woman in his life.
2: The one thing that really struck me later, I don't even I don't know if I have a point, but it was so interesting to me. The like casual mention of the concentration camps. I guess I, for some reason, I sort of thought that it wasn't that well known, but also they make mm. it seem like the guy, like he made it out and he escaped and like that's the thing.
0: And he's got the little scar on his face.
2: Yeah. In school, for some reason, my memory is that when the troops like freed the concentration camps, they were shocked at how terrible it was. Like, they didn't know how bad the concentration camps were. So, I thought it was just interesting that they, like, both mentioned that he was in there, but also it seemed like sort of a light touch on it. You know, it was like, oh, he was in a concentration camp and he got out. (laughs) I don't know
0: what audiences would have interpreted concentration camp to mean, Mm. whether or not they had that in mind, whether or not they thought they were targeting specific groups of people like the Jews you know, or whether, whether or not the Nazis were just imprisoning people on a large scale in a bad but not horrifically cruel way. Mm. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how the audience is supposed to understand that line at the time. Whereas now, obviously, we can look back and say, oh, well, yeah, sure, concentration camps, that sounds like the Nazis. But yeah, you're right, because there's, I, I remember the learning the same thing, that the reality of the Holocaust was not widely known until after the Allies liberated those concentration camps. But I wonder if that's like a little bit of revisionism to make it more okay that we didn't do something sooner Mm. because we didn't know the full scope. I don't know. I honestly don't know the the history that well.
2: Me either. And I'm like, this isn't really like a good podcast segment, but I did find that interesting. (laughs) I was like, huh, I feel like I need to go back. Like, I need to do some reading on that because that did strike me at the time. I was like, this feels very like a casual mention (laughs) of the fact that the guy was in a concentration camp. You'd think that'd be, like, more horrific. Yeah, because he seems to be doing okay now. Yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, you know, he's lost... They do mention that he's lost weight, but it was also kind of... I don't say to say that it was a it passing. It's played for laugh. Yeah, it's like, oh, but I'm still here. Like, I'm, I'm the guy who gets out. Laszlo has the... Lilsa's husband, Laszlo, has this
0: very affable demeanor. Like, even when he kind of pieces together that Rick and his wife had some kind of an affair in Paris, he's immediately forgiving Mm. and understanding about that like he doesn't really require any kind of explanation or anything like that because like you said earlier like that character could have been a jerk and could have given Elsa an excuse to leave him right no excuses though like he's he's a good guy all the way through all right well if uh, you listening at home have not seen Casablanca in a while or ever go see it and celebrate its 80th anniversary Kara thank you for joining us
2: As always, thanks for having me.
0: Be sure to share this podcast with your friends. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Bye now and God love you.